Be seated. We're going to dive into Ephesians. We're not going to be in Acts this time. We talked in Acts last time and, and saw the, the birth of the church in Ephesus. Wow, wasn't that something? Uh, revival and then a riot. And that's what God does when he breaks into a city. He breaks into a city and it causes a bunch of good, but it disrupts everything that's not of him and through him and to him and for him. It even disrupts the patterns in our life when God breaks in for his good and for his glory. So the church in Ephesus was a, a place, it was a, it was a big city, it's about 300,000 people. And for an ancient city, that was a huge city. Lots of spiritual activity. It was a worship hub. There was different cults and different uh, monuments that people would come together and to worship. It was said about the city that there was so much spiritual activity in the city that there was more demons than there were people in the city. So the way they looked at it was that there was so much spiritual activity that there was 300,000 plus in the demonic realm flying around more than people that were there. So this is a place that Paul comes into and establishes a church right in the middle of that environment, and great revival breaks out. And so this letter that we're about to read was, was this church that Paul had planted, and just tremendous things happened, happened in this city. Like I said, revival broke out. People started burning all their magical amulets and spell books and different things, the total of what everybody burned from the city equaled up to $7 million, our, our value today. So it disrupted the economy, and there were some people not happy about that kind of disruption. So it would be the equivalent of if revival broke out in this city and uh, people quit going to the racetrack in the casino. <laughs> and wouldn't it be something if they said, hey, would you guys... Uh, use our facilities to have a church service and, and rent it out from us, like, right? And uh, we need to have faith to believe God can do big things. It's time to take the limits off of what we think God can do in our life because he's freely given us all things and he's freely given us his son. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's set us up for victory. We're going to win. And even death just puts us into the presence of Jesus, so even that is a victory. So it sounds to me like we've already won. What would happen if we walked like and lived like we've already won? Yeah. What would that look like in a city if a group of people did that? So we've entitled this series, This Is Us, and the reason why I'm entitled that is, is not because it's all about us, but it does have something to do with us, Right? That in the first chapter, Paul talks about what God has done for us. Usually in Paul's writings, he starts with this salutation, this greeting, and then he begins to thank God for the people that he's talking to. In this letter, he does something completely different. He introduces himself to his audience and then enters into this prayer to God. It's almost like he ignores his audience and looks up in God and gets a prayer in before he continues on. And I want you to know that it would be more important 
for us, there's my voice, but there's such a delay I can't, I can't keep up. It would be more important for Paul to tune into him before he speaks to his audience. And I want to tell you, it's more important for us before we say one word to anybody that we've turned our gaze unto the Father and begin to address him before we begin to address anybody else. So Paul is setting forth something pretty unique here in this church. And so in the first chapter, he talks about what God has done for us. In chapter 2, uh, in the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he talks about what God has done in us. And then half of chapter 2 to chapter 3, he talks about what God has done between us. So he moves us from the finished work of God to the work that he's doing in us to the work that he's done to reconcile and bring Jew and Gentile together. So the first three chapters, that's where Paul goes. Theological. Everything God's done for us, in us, between us. Then chapters four through six, he gets into the nitty gritty. What does that look like if I'm going to live according to those truths? So in four, five, and six, he talks about what it is to walk in unity. Talks about the armor of God, what I need to, to have to be prepared to be in this battle and walk this kind of life out. So we're going to look at chapter 1 first. So if you get your Bibles out, get your notepads, take some notes. God might speak something to you even beyond what I can teach you because the Holy Spirit's good at that kind of stuff. So Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 1. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing that stuck out to me, and, and man, I can't hardly go one verse without talking about what's going on in the Bible, okay? It's just, we're going to try to get through this, but I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But the first thing that the Lord hit me with while I was reading was that Paul addresses himself as an apostle. And we kind of picture Paul like we talked about last week in this kind of hero-esque light, as if he wasn't a real person. Like he didn't have a nature like us. Like he was on this super spiritual thing, but I'm like down here somewhere, and so I don't really need to attain to that at all or, or, or whatever. So we create these barriers in our mind because there's been so much time and distance between us and those people. And when we see their exploits and we look at our life, we say, well, that doesn't really measure up. He must have something I don't have. But I want to tell you this, that the Bible is actually an invitation to step into and walk into and begin to pursue these things that these men walked in. It's not to create a barrier to think that you're not as good. It's to create for you a desire and a hunger to step into that thing and to go deeper. That's why the Bible always says uh, to desire the spiritual gifts. It tells us to he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It tells us to go further and farther to ask. In the Greek tense, it's to ask ask and keep asking. It tells us to knock. To knock in that tense is to keep knocking. It tells us to, to continue to pursue and to keep our focus on the thing and to push in as far and as hard as we want to push into. That's the invitation that the scripture makes. But Paul calls himself an apostle. 
Um, if you think about the Apostle Paul, he was one of the most fierce enemies to the Christians before he was saved and, and gave his life to Christ. He was one of the fiercest opponents. So he's now writing to these people as one of the most fierce opponents and then writing from this place of authority to tell them what they ought to be doing. Think about that. You ever did, you ever did this like, I can't tell them and give them that advice or that word, Lord, because you know I did this, that, or the other. But here's the thing. That advice that you're given, that word that you're given, is not yours. See, you've owned something as if you have the decision on whether you can deliver it or not. The calling and the will comes from God. So you be obedient to what God says regardless of what you've done. I have to think it would be hard for him to do that. He might have killed some of their relatives. I don't know. I'm just talking out loud here. It's all speculation, but here he is having to say, I'm writing to you from a place of authority, even though I've done some pretty crummy stuff to you guys. That he's having to operate and trust what God says and what God says he is and the grace God has given him amidst other people that are probably more qualified and didn't have the resume he had. Paul is an apostle who didn't walk with Jesus physically on the earth. Paul wasn't directly chosen by Jesus in his earthly ministry as one of the 12. He could work in his mind probably all kinds of things that would disqualify himself in his own mind to not address this church in the power and the authority that God had given him. But he moves past the place of pedigree and everything else, sees that it's all of grace, and from that place operates from authority to begin to establish into this church the way they ought to walk, the way they ought to go. That took some courage. That took some courage. So I don't want us to divorce ourselves from Paul the person while we're reading this. I want you to know he had every reason to be ashamed to say, I'm not qualified to tell this church what they ought to do. But instead, he believed what God said about him and who God called him to be more than his past was informing him, possibly. So the word to us is, don't worry about your pedigree your education, how many documents you can put on the wall. You worry about who God has said you are Amen. and what he's called you to be. And from that place, it's not your choice to do what you want to with it. It is King Jesus and what he's telling you to do that is the most utmost importance in every area of your life. So don't disqualify yourself because of your past and act like that's holy. Because it's not. So Paul says crazy things like this. I pray in tongues more than you all. I say, what? If I said that, y'all kick me out right now. 
You say, I bet you didn't. I prayed more than you did. He said, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. Would you tell somebody to follow you as you follow Christ? Or would you say, oh, no, don't follow me, man. You'll round up in a ditch. Then the question is, who are you following? So see, there's a responsibility that we're called into that we better man up into and step into in Jesus that will require all of us, every single part of us, not Pastor Matt and his ministry, you, you and your ministry. And it's going to require every bit of you to look past your past and to step into the thing that God's called you to do. It doesn't make you any more holy because you sit in a seat and listen to me every week. That's right, Tim. Especially you, Tim. I mean, I appreciate the audience, but honestly, I can go downtown and get a PA. And a black leather Bible, and I can get all the audience I want. I don't need an audience. I need an army. I need an army of people that don't want to spectate but want to participate. Yeah. Well, verse one. We better hurry up. We're going to be here all night. So, here's Paul in the position where he's got to receive. And trust the grace of God in the position he's given to deliver the words that God wants him to deliver. Now the people have a responsibility to position themselves in such a place where they'll receive what Paul's saying based upon the grace of God and his calling, not based upon his humanity. So Paul's got to trust in his calling, and the people's got to trust in his calling to receive it, to get the full benefit of what he's got to say. That's why ministry is always a two-way street. That's why when Jesus went to Nazareth, he couldn't do many miracles. Why? Isn't that just the old carpenter's boy? Yeah, we know him. That's old Joe's son over there. He built cabinets over there. He ain't got, he ain't nobody. The Bible says Jesus did a few miracles of healing the sick, but couldn't do what he really wanted to do. Why? Because if I don't respect what's on somebody's life, I'll never receive the full benefit of what's on somebody's life. That's why the Bible tells us to take it easy on our shepherds because they watch after our souls. For the shepherd's sake? No. For our sake. Because we won't receive the full benefit if we don't give the double honor. So only what I respect on someone's life will be the level that I receive. So as an audience, I'm in a position to not look at the humanity, right? Because we can all find the humanity in the flaws. Hello. I'm in a position where I have to trust the calling and the divinity and the grace that God's put on the life to speak into my life. Why? 
so that I can just be filled up with more knowledge? No, so that that grace might ignite something in me and set me off into my purpose and who God's called me to be. So I don't want us to divorce the hearers because they had to position themselves to hear from the apostle and the apostle had to be brave enough to speak the thing God was saying to trust that it would fulfill and accomplish what God had set it out to do. Verse two, <laughs> we're getting, making our way down here. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul goes right in here to this prayer that I was talking about unto God. So he introduces himself and then he goes in verse three. Verse three to six, he talks about God the Father. Verse seven through 12, he talks about God the Son and the price that he paid to bring us into this place. In verse 13 and 14, he talks about the Holy Spirit. So Paul addresses all three members of the Trinity in this prayer that we're about to, about to read right here. Verse three. Blessed is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Now, this is the only book in the whole Bible that mentions the heavenly realms. Again, probably because Ephesus had so much spiritual activity going on, the people had to be reminded that Jesus had power over all that stuff. So he's turning these pagan people's views from this city that had been dominated with principalities and powers and things that were coming in and attacking them to know that Jesus has control over every bit of that. That Jesus Christ doesn't just triumph over the earthly realities. He triumphs as well in the spiritual and heavenly realms. That there's no entity that's stronger than Jesus. And so they had to be reminded of that reality. Because in the pagan world, there was something that they would do. They had a God for everything, right? Like here's a God for love. Here's a God for uh, fertility or money. Here's a God for, uh, you know, this. And here's a God for that. And it was like this kind of weird battle. There wasn't this idea that there was these pure-hearted gods, it was just this God was stronger than that God, and then they would get in a battle. And so, so you're always playing this game of what God am I going to worship to get what result? Now think if you're born into that, and that seeped into the society, and that's just permeated your mind. And then a man comes to town and said, oh yeah, one true God. Huh? One true God that's perfect and beautiful and gives himself to you freely. And it's begging you to, you're thinking, what? I mean, your circuits are short, you know, your wheels and things are popping out. So Paul's changing mindsets here. And he's saying, look, Jesus Christ has power over all that. You don't have to go anywhere. It's like going to Walmart. I can get an oil change. I can buy a tire. I can come out with a rotisserie chicken and a loaf of bread. He's saying, look, you ain't got to look all over the place. There's one with all power and all authority. And his name's God the Father. And he's given us his son, King Jesus. And so he's changing their mindsets. And, and I know we might not have like a bunch of different gods, but don't we have a bunch of different things that we do? 
that divide our loyalties to Jesus? Where we're this over here, well, if I do this, I'll get this result. And, if I do, and then and we're, we got these kind of superstitious things that we do that... And Paul would come to us and say, stop. Look to him and realize he's got all power and authority in heaven and on earth. So Paul is changing their focus. He's getting their minds singularly focused onto the power of King Jesus who has power over all the cosmic forces. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So here's where we get the, the choosing thing and this is where people get a little bit weird about it and crazy kind of doctrines come out of this. Uh, some of your version might say the elect or, or something of that. But I want you to know God's choosing is not arbitrary. It's not like God is capricious or fly off the handle and make a random choice or I'm choosing that. Well, why are you choosing that, God? Well, just because I wanted to. And I don't got no explanation for choosing it. I just want to do it. And I'm God, so don't question it. Like, like that's not God's heart. Jesus is choosing us in the sense before the foundations of the world, what does it say? So that we might be holy and blameless before him in love and it's in Christ that he chooses us, right? You see that? For he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So here's what Paul's saying. There's been one person chosen, and the one person chosen, if you choose him, you're chosen too. So again, Paul is directing us to look at God alone. He's got all the power, the cosmic forces. I don't have to fight all this warfare. I can just focus on Jesus and Jesus can win the battle because he's the strongest. And then he brings us to a place as there's one person chosen, Christ. And Christ is picked before the world's created. So what's God revealing it to us about himself? God creates the solution before man creates the problem. So he gets us outside of ourself to know, wait a second, God's already chosen. I don't have to be picked. I don't have to perform to be picked. He's already picked somebody and says, pick him. He's the way. So as God started a new nation with Abraham through one man, he starts a new Israel through another man named Jesus and says, anybody that picks him, you're in. You're in. So he's saying, quit looking everywhere. And people have taken that verse and perverted it as if God's picked some and others, oh, sorry about you. Why'd you pick them and not pick them? God, how dare you talk about the Lord like that? It's like, that's not God's heart. He's not picking some and not picking the others. He's picked only one and his name's Jesus. That's a statement. Why does bad things happen to good people? I said, that only happened once and he died on the cross and rose again. So it's like... So, is that okay? Sorry, I'm getting in the flesh here. Settle down, settle down. Okay. So God freely chose all 
who would accept Christ to become his adopted children. Wow. A loving choice he made before he created anything. Isn't that something? Verse 5, so he did this by predestining us to adoption as his legal heirs through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will. Man, you are a pleasure to God's heart. You're a pleasure. The thing about adoption that's different is you actually get picked. Like my kids, I didn't get the choice. I'd be like, God, give me some good ones, you know? <laughs> Hell. Unnatural kids have to be picked. And so God says, in Jesus, I pick you. So you pick me? Yeah, I pick you. So suddenly the picking of God before the foundations of the world, he picked me before I messed everything up. So Paul's saying, I can stand from this place of authority as an apostle, not based upon my ability to be really good or that I'm perfect. It's because God picked me to do this before the foundations of the world. So Paul says, in that choice, I don't have a choice. Because if it's something I desire, I pick it because I want to, not because I have to. So God gets us past the pace of choice because he puts a desire in us that would have to choose. It's kind of like you've ever been in a service and you've got a lot going on and just like the weight of God's glory comes in and just presses in on you. And you know at that moment, I've got to make a decision. I can't keep riding the fence. You ever had that? It's like God is pressing his will onto your will so that you might choose his will. And when the presence comes in in a weight like that, man, you respond and just say, okay, God, I give up. It's all yours. You can have it have it. So God chooses Jesus whereby we could choose Jesus and be chosen in him. So the chain of love isn't broken. Because is it love if I'm forced to do something? Is it love if there's no freedom involved? Absolutely not. So God honors our choice by choosing Jesus and says, choose him. So the chain of love is not broken because we get a choice and God had a choice. See what I'm saying? So he honors our free will by pointing to the one place we can be saved and find our redemption and be reconciled back to the Father and be adopted back into the family, and be joint heirs with Jesus. Isn't this embarrassing? How glorious the giftings God's given us? I mean, it almost, almost makes me blush. 
It's like, this is just beautiful, God. What are you doing? <laughs> like, you're really doing that for us? And God's like, yeah, it's who I am. It's just the makeup of who I am. So he gives us this freedom to choose by choosing Jesus. So God accomplishes his purposes without us being robots. So it puts us in a position of responsibility to where we have to make a choice when we hear. Yeah. Are we going to choose Jesus or something else? It's like this perfectly orchestrated thing that's going on with the, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis called it the dance. And if you've ever seen a dance take place, right? Like the man will move and then the woman will have to receive that man in, right? And then the woman responds and the man has to submit to that. And so we have this perfectly choosing orchestrated dance that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, hey, psst, psst, psst. Feel what it feels like to move and have freedom, but yet be submitted to one another. And then you get to turn to someone else, and it turns into like a do si do, like, what is that called? Square dancing? And then you're like, grab somebody else, and then they're coming into the dance, and like, God's like, wow, the whole world is dancing. But at first, it doesn't feel like a dance. Um, when we went on a cruise for our honeymoon, my wife and I, um, she wanted to take the salsa class. Oh my gosh, embarrassing. So embarrassing. Oh my gosh, terribly embarrassing. But I wanted to honor my wife and get in there and mix it up. Mm, yeah. So what's worse about it is you go and do it, but then there's people that get in the crowd that watch you Embarrass yourself while they laugh because they're not brave enough to get into the dance. Oh, sounds like church. No, I'm just like. Uh, so, when we first started dancing, you know, I couldn't feel it. I mean, I don't know the salsa or whatever it was, but the guy had counting steps one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. And then by the end, I'm like, one, two, three. Four, Embarrassing. Really was. But I had to get my timing down until it became second nature. And then after a while, I could do it without thinking about it. And so when God first initiates you into the dance, it feels one, two, three four, five, and you're stepping on God's toes and everybody else's, and, and he keeps saying, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, and before you know it, man, you are in there with the best of them, and you don't even know how you got there. Yeah, that's good. So good. So God says, how can my left hand know what my right hand's doing? Don't let them know. How can that be a reality? Well, when they're in a dance and in a flow... They're moving independent without even thinking. Why? Because they're in the dance. It's a second nature thing. And so don't be hard on yourself if you're new to the dance. 
and you're still having to go, one, two, three, what in the world is he talking about? Seven, eight. I don't know where Ephesians is. I've never heard of such a thing. Five, six, seven, eight. Oh, this guy talks too long and preaches too long. I got things to do. I'm ready to hit the vape pipe. Get this guy shut up. Seven, eight. Oh, man. Oh, dude. Seven, eight. It's going to feel weird at first. But if you'll keep up with it, before you know it, man, you're going to be grabbing other folks and they're going to be dancing and crazy cool stuff's going to be happening. But you've got to stick with the dance. You've got to stick with it. You've got to get caught up in it. Yeah. You've got to get lost in it until you enter the place of muscle memory. Yeah. Spiritual muscle memory. Yeah. Verse 6, to the praise and glory of his grace. That's how he closes each segment as he talks about the Trinity. To the praise and glory of his grace that he freely bestowed on us in his dearly loved son. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our offenses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. I mean, this is just... It just keeps unrolling. It's like it keeps getting better and better. He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He did this when he revealed to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ. So here the language here of redemption is, a, is payment language. It's the language that they would use when a slave was purchased by someone. So it's this Romans 3.24, he has freely justified us by his grace and redeemed us. It's the language of a slave being purchased. And not only purchased, but the purchase was to lead to adoption, which led to son and daughtership, which led to being joint heirs, which led to access, the same access that Jesus had with the Father. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah. I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah. So we see the beautiful thing of what Jesus did is shed blood on the cross that enabled this purchase. And when you see that mystery there, it's not a mystery because it can't be known. It's a mystery because it can only be experienced. And if you've been in this thing long enough, you know some things can be taught and some things got to be caught. Yeah. Teaching can sometimes give you enough courage to go for it, but it will never, ever, ever be the reality of the thing. It's like God will tell you something, you'll have to be obedient to it, and then he gives you the understanding why. <laughs> why? Because he gives you the opportunity to operate in faith. Well, why? Is God just cruel and doesn't like to reveal things? No, but faith is the only entity that pleases him. Why? Because it's the only entity that shows you actually trust him. And God loves when his people trust him. It, like, gets him excited. It gives him pleasure when his people, like, really believe what he says. Yeah. So, God revealed... And fulfilled his will for us in Jesus. Now, Adam 
was revealed in the sense that it kind of like, it showed the plan of God in the sense of like dominion and rule. But Jesus shows us another way forward, and he shows us that we must realize we're part of the family before we step into dominion and rule. That Adam was given dominion but wasn't sure about his sonship. Jesus was sure about his sonship so he could enter into dominion. So, where are we going to start? Well, where did he tell us to start? God the Father who's adopted us, right? He's trying to establish the family reality of God so that when you step into your calling and your power, you're not selfish and misuse it and mislead people and manipulate them. Because that's what orphans do. They manipulate and survive. But sons and daughters reveal the Father. Yeah. So Paul's trying to establish that for us here. Adam was introduced to the Creator and got a job first. Jesus comes as a son and then shows us our job. Verse 10, toward the administration of the fullness of the times to head up all things in Christ, things in heaven and on the things in earth. God's redemption plan is heaven and earth. I mean, it's, it's, it's all encompassing. Verse 11, in Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. Since we are predestined according to the purpose of him, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Wow. Isn't that cool? Again, that stanza. So then we go into Holy Ghost, other part of the Trinity. Verse 13, And when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed... You are marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession. Again, the phrase, to the praise of his glory. That believers are sealed. And so the picture here is of the ancient letters when they were sent Um, to seal up both ends, they would use wax. And in that wax would be an insignia, sometimes on a ring or something that would press into that wax that would let them know that this thing's not quite open yet, but we know where it came from. So it's like Holy Ghost gets God the Father's insignia and he presses it in on you. And he says, it's not yet been revealed, but my name's on you, and it will be revealed in time. That Holy Spirit has put the Father's name and pressed it into your DNA. Says, I got you. And you don't know what's going on, you don't know what's happening. You don't even know how to feel. And God says, all that will be revealed. Just know this. I've sealed you and marked you and put my name and pressed my DNA on the inside of you. So everywhere you go, 
people know where this letter came from. Yeah. It's beautiful. The Bible says we are his workmanship. The word workmanship in the Greek is poema, which is where we get our word poem. That you are God's poem. Not yet been revealed, but been sealed by God himself. And maybe that's the mystery. We don't know the contents on the inside. We just know the seal. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. So what happens when that thing gets opened one day? Well, maybe we'll be known as we truly are. And we'll say, wow, God, I didn't know you felt that way about me. I didn't know my life meant that much. I didn't know my poem was that beautiful. All I could see was your name. Yeah. Pretty cool. Ephesians is one of the only letters that rolls this thing out like that. It's beautiful. So now we'll go into our next. Now he decides, I guess I'm going to pray and thank God for the Ephesians at this point. (laughs) So he's thanked God for everything he's done for them. Now he goes into his prayer to thank God for the faithfulness of this church in Ephesus. Who had to make a choice whether they were going to serve God or serve other things. Who had to make some choices when the economy started getting disrupted and they started getting persecuted. Which way were they going to go? Yeah. Sound familiar? But as things close in on us, hey, we already won. You kidding me? God going to let us starve? Is he going to end his glory because we're going to enter into tough times? I have a feeling a victorious warrior church is going to rise up. So full of his glory that the world can't ignore us anymore. Set aflame. We've got to settle in our heart who's our king and who are we loyal to. So right now in the spirit, I feel like God's given us a coin. said, whose inscription's on there? Yeah. Give to Caesar what's to Caesar, but give to God what's to God. Well, what's to God? All my mind, heart, strength, everything I got. So what's left for Caesar? Hmm. Not much. Not much left for Caesar. It's kind of all God's. Yeah, it's all God's. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah, verse 15. Here we go. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him. Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so that you can know what is the hope of his calling. What's the hope of his calling? Sons and daughters, family. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Well, ruling the world with him as kings and priests. 
Verse 19, and what is the incomparable greatness of his power towards us who believe as displays in the exercise of his immense strength, the Holy Spirit working in our life to accomplish the purposes of God to bring these things into reality. So God swallows up our whole life, the calling, our past. Because we all had a past until he called, didn't we? <laughs> the future, inheritance. Don't get that till the end. And then what's the present? The power towards us who believe. So that we'll continue in him to receive that inheritance. Verse 20. This power he exercises in Christ when he raised him from the dead seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to the church as the head over all things. Now the church is his body, <laughs> the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who's the fullness of God who fills all in all? The church. Who's the church? <laughs> Hello. You fill all in all. You fill all in all. In his body. So we can be confident that a great inheritance awaits us. And by the incomparable power of God that raised Christ from the dead. Put him in his heavenly exalted position next to God himself. And in Ephesians 2 we read that we are actually seated with him in heavenly places. So half of you is already there. Hmm. Interesting. Or maybe all of you is already there. <laughs> I don't know. By definition, this includes believers. That this is who we are. Christ's headship over the cosmos and our body fulfilling the duty of that headship in the world that we live in. Wow. Isn't this, is, I mean, this blows your mind. This is like stuff that's like, like pinching myself. God, is this, this is bizarre. So the Bible says that it fills all in all, and I got to thinking about that. What, what does that mean? That means that when I begin to walk into that reality, the earth actually bends to fit me, and I don't bend to conform to the world. So Paul says, be not conformed to the world. Why? Because your imprint is that of the king and his rule, that is to bend the world to fit into you so that it might be all in all. So that the thoughts and intents of the head are carried out by his body in the same authority, in the same name. I mean, it's just incredible. Lord, we thank you, God, for a treasure trove of riches in your word. Sons and daughters, than kings and priests. 
seated at the right hand of God with you, far above every principality and every name that's been named. God, that we can, we can be confident and courageous in these times, that we're not orphaned, we're not alone, that we are your body and have the same name. God, by your Holy Spirit, you've pressed in your insignia into our mortal clay and said, this is mine, sealed until the day of our inheritance. So God, we enter the mystery of (laughs) what's on the inside of the scroll. We don't know, but we know the name and we know it's good. So God, give us confidence as we walk in these mysterious times to know you're working all things together for your good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.